Those poor boys. Will this subject ever rest? I suspect not while it continues to sell newspapers in the numbers it does. Which doesn't bode well for my upcoming jubilee. Mm. The planning committee came today with their latest suggestions. Bigger than ever, my heart sank. I keep telling them the timing is not right. At this moment, people don't want to celebrate me. They're sick of me, quite frankly. Better not to provoke them with any grand displays. But the list went on and on. Mummy? Don't go, please. You can't leave me alone with it all. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the show that follows the sixth and final season of the Netflix series, The Crown, episode by episode. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we'll be talking about episode nine of season six, titled Hope Street. In the aftermath of Princess Margaret's death, Queen Elizabeth approaches her golden jubilee with more trepidation than ever before. To make matters worse, a new investigation is launched into Diana and Dodie's deaths, thanks to a relentless public campaign by Mohammed Al-Fayed, who believes the royal family are to blame. When the Queen Mother passes away, Elizabeth hopes that Prince William might take a central role in the Jubilee celebrations. But between his blossoming romance with Kate and the reopened case surrounding his mother's death, William wants to lead as normal a life as possible while he still can. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't managed to watch episode nine yet, I suggest you do that now or very soon. Coming up on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, we'll say goodbye to the Queen Mother with Marsha Warren. Everybody you spoke to who had known her just adored her, but there was this steely thing there as well. We'll hear about the pivotal role of research in recreating the Paget investigation. We watched all the footage, we talked to experts, we talked to a crash expert who talked us through what would happen to a Mercedes at that speed and all this kind of thing. Because, you know, the incredible set deck and graphics department had to reconstruct all these things for the evidence room. And we'll meet the brand new talent behind Prince Harry in this series, Luther Ford. What was interesting in researching is this idea of a desire for normality on their part. But there was something interesting about, you know, what does normal mean to a prince? But first, let's jump into episode nine with director Eric Richter-Strand. There's a lot going on here. We have a, a really weighted kind of emotion, but then you also have this lightness as well. How, describe to us what's happening in episode nine, Hope Street. It's unusually many storylines. There are four storylines that inform each other and develop parallel and eventually converge. And it's the Queen's Golden Jubilee which took place in 2002. And then there's the accusations and allegations leveled by Mohammed Al-Fayed about how he feels there were conspiracies that were behind the deaths of Diana and Dodi. Mm -hmm. Then there is the Queen Mother, 
who becomes very ill and eventually dies in the episode. And then there's William and Kate and their relationship developing in St. Andrews and how that sort of leads us into a future that's uh, coming on later. And those four storylines, the episode juxtaposes and intercuts these storylines in a way that is different than the other episodes I worked on Mm -hmm. on the show where there's more of, okay, this is the story. Yeah. We stick with that. And, you know, what happens next? Whereas this time, a lot of times you're cut to a new scene and it's a different storyline and that gives the episode a different energy. One thing that's been really important to Peter has been the opportunity to tell Muhammad Al-Fayed's story and to kind of really give him a voice and humanise him. His storylines obviously come in and out, but in this particular episode, it kind of closes the Al-Fayed storyline. And I wanted to talk to you about where we find him in this you know he's he's a father really dealing with grief and and many other things really but yeah yeah he's a man who is not accustomed to not getting his wish Mm. Uh, and he's a man who's also at this point lost a bit of touch with the reality in a sense so he's he's clinging to this idea this life lie that what happened to Doni and what happened to Diana in Paris is a vast conspiracy that goes into the deepest, you know, underbellies of uh, the British establishment and even into Prince Philip and and the royal family's mm. very core. And he makes these accusations very uh, publicly and very strongly, and he keeps on repeating them. And it's creating this situation where he cannot any longer be ignored and the press gets on board and it becomes this momentum. Okay, well, he's saying this thing that he's saying is crazy. We need to actually look at it and see if there's any any truth to it at all. They murdered that beautiful, innocent girl and my daughter with special military equipment and flashing lights. I have new evidence, expert witnesses, and CCTV tapes. And I will have my justice. It's interesting because that's got obviously a kind of almost hark back to one of the previous episodes that you worked on, the the Bashir, where he kind of was stoking Diana's fears and kind of insecurities that she had, you know, in terms of interest and for there to be a seed planted back in that episode of conspiracy theories and and people's kind of perception or misconception of situations. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that storyline, Bashir interview, has really long tentacles and it goes all the way into this episode. Like the investigation brings all of that back, Mm. not only for Charles, but also for William, and um, that's something that Muhammad, in a way, picks up the baton from yeah. from Diana in those beliefs that, you know, she's being set up and people are out to get her. And then after she's passed away and died, Muhammad carries that continues torch and, it on. and really continues it on. Like I said, he's not used to not getting his way. He's not used to getting a no. And um, he's made this situation where if he can no longer believe this, what he believes so strongly, which is a conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. then he loses, in a way, his purpose in life. How was it working with Salim? It was lovely. Salim is such an intuitive, uh, emotional actor, and he 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 has very strong ideas and gives it his all. And you know, he's gone on a long journey with this character from episode, you know, five or three, and, and throughout the last season, and then this season coming up till till to six or nine. So for me, it was a real joy to be able to work with him. 
And all this comes at a time when the Queen's at a real low in terms of confidence. I mean, she's really struggling in a way that we haven't seen before. Tell me a little bit about working with Imelda on this episode to show, I guess, a more vulnerable Queen Elizabeth. Imelda in this episode nine portrays a vulnerability and an almost fragility that we haven't seen so much yeah. with the Queen in, uh, in previous previous episodes. So it's about finding the right tenor of that and finding the right level of anxiety and you know, quivering lips and hands that shake and, you know, the, the tone of her breath and all of that. Yeah. So in those close-ups, what's, it can easily tip over and be too much. And she's, yeah. of course, very sensitive to that. So we have to find exactly what, what is right and what's, what is still feel like the Queen. Well, it, particularly in the, the scene, you know, with the Queen Mother passing and, you know, Imelda and Marcia both kind of... yeah navigating that and like you say it's kind of you it's not like we can see the queen Imelda's queen burst into tears and you know react as we all would if our mother passed away it's a fine line but there needs to be cracks there needs to we need we still need to see something don't we we do and we decided to do that quite still there is no dialogue and we just sort of decided also to go in just after she died like in the second after, in a way. So there's no long, prolonged death rattle and, you know, that sort of thing. We yeah. just, just stripped everything out, kept it very still and just focused on capturing Imelda's performance at the moment where it sinks in that now I've lost connection to that generation, my parents' generation, the only woman who's gone before me who I could talk about what it was like to be more or less in the role that I'm in now. Mm. And that that tie is now severed and I'm more alone than I ever was. And as we say goodbye to the Queen Mother in this episode, I spoke to actor Marsha Warren, who plays her in seasons five and six, to look back at her experience on the show. I feel like I should be curtsying in your presence, <laughs> Marsha, to be honest, to give you your, your majesty. Um, it's so great to chat to you and congratulations on your performance in The Crown. That's very kind of you. It's the best job in the world, I suppose. Oh. How did you come to this role in The Crown? The telephone went. My agent said they want you to go up for the Queen Mother and I roared with laughter. I said, she's 91, she's a bit stout. <laughs> Uh, she's got a very pretty round face and the only thing I've, I've got that's like her is her bad teeth and hips. Um, but still, I went up for it. <laughs> who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? And it was with this wretched Zoom audition. Anyway, I read a, a biography. I put the blue blouse on her favourite co uh, colour, lots of beads of pearls, of course, and became very calm and, and stately. And the Zoom didn't work and they couldn't hear a word I said. So I thought this role has gone out the no. window. So they mimed <laughs> after 10 minutes, get your phone. So I went to my phone, battery critically low. <laughs> so the Queen Mother was seen crawling, all on camera, <laughs> crawling over the floor with extension leads, trying to renew the battery. It was dreadful. But eventually we finished it and they recalled me. God knows why. God knows why. 
And I went to see them. But it, it was terrifying because it was so important and such a responsibility. Once you got the role then, did you kind of dive into to research? And obviously yeah. Peter's scripts are are kind of rich with, you know, with, with information and relationships. Yes. I mean, I read everything going. I'm mastermind on the Queen Mother. But there is very <laughs> little to go on voice-wise. That, that's the trouble. She gave yeah. an interview when she was young mm. to the press and George V, who was then on the throne, was furious with her. He said, you do not show your feelings, you do not, do, you just don't talk like this. So she never gave another interview. So we don't know really what, what oh, her wow. private voice was like. You, because if you give a speech, that that's not your voice, is it? You know, you're, you're saying it louder yeah. into a lot of people. But I've found a tiny little film, The Queen Mother's Horses. And because she was talking about things she loved and was talking about carrots, and uh, that that's really where I took the voice from. There's a lot of offs. She really did say off. <laughs> that, that was quite hard. Really. But I read a book by her equerry, as we have to call it, I'm still getting used to it, who was with her for two years. And that was the most interesting because it was so personal. And that, that was a very good book to read and lots yeah. of marvellous stories. We've been lucky enough to, to come on set, Marsha, and watch a few things being done, which is just, it's such a wonderful luxury. For you coming into The Crown and, you know, this... And, and the same with, with every, you know, kind of pairing of seasons when it's new cast that come in. This is a well-oiled machine now. And absolutely. What was your expectation on, on what the set was going to be like versus what the the reality of it I, was? I couldn't believe those production values. I have never seen anything like it in my life. The care and the research and the detail was extraordinary. The very first shot I did, I had a blue hat and it was her favourite and it was old and wonky and she loved walking about in it. And I put this hat on and it, it wasn't right at all. It was specially made, it just wasn't right. And darling Amy Roberts, the costume designer, came in and she said, oh. oh. So she took the hat off, stamped on it and put it back on my head. No. <laughs> then she took it off. She took the hat band out of it, plonked it on that. No. Then she took the whole lining out, stamped on it several times and pushed it down onto my head. That was right. That was right. But they, they'd move a brooch a centimetre to get it right, studying the picture, you know. And the makeup, my favourite part of the day, was about two hours, uh, tiny little curls, and they dyed my hair white. I can't forgive them for that. <laughs> and uh, they, because they create the character, really, don't they? The makeup and wardrobe, really, when it comes down to it. With you? Yeah, I, I do. I, With I, I you, do though, a it's a team effort, isn't it? It's the yes, collaboration. Yes, but they're, so, they're <laughs> so, so important. And as you say, they've got all the baggage of having done all those series. They knew, know much more than you do about it. It's just a joy. You do all the research and preparation and then you have, you know, Peter's version of the Queen Mother. How would you describe Peter's version of the Queen Mother, who we all 
you know, have an image of or a, a thought of or a memory of from seeing her on TV or I, however that may be? I would describe Peter's view of the Queen Mother as quiet because I didn't have that many lines. <laughs> But he brought such humour to it. That, that was a, a great blessing. Something that, that's what people love about, one of the things that they love about the Crown's version of the Queen Mother is her comedy, though. She she brings this kind of real fun with the scripts at certain moments and, the, and sort of light relief sometimes uh, at moments. Was that fun to play with? She smiled all the time, you know. In life, and she was wonderful to her staff and everybody you spoke to who had known her just adored her. But there was this steely thing there as well. And protocol was so important to her, you know, let alone duty, of course. There's this wonderful thing called directional talking. And at dinners, the Queen would talk, had to talk to her somebody on her left and after a certain time, turned and have a conversation on her right. And everybody else had to do that at the same time. And you heard this voice say, I think it's time for turning. Oh, now, whether that, but that, it's sensible, isn't it? Otherwise, you're, you're ignoring, you're ignoring wow. the other guest, aren't you? I think all, all the protocol things about the proper uniforms and God knows what are, in the end, commonsensical and sensible. It's a beautiful episode because we really, we really feel the power and the strength of the bond between mother and daughter with you know, Elizabeth and the Queen Mother. That scene where, you know, where you pass away is, it's a, it's such a a moving and beautiful scene, you know, when, when she says, Mommy, don't go, please. You can't leave me alone with it all. It's a woman losing her mother. Absolutely. Put aside that yeah. it's the yeah. Queen and the Queen Mother. It's someone losing her mm. confidant, her friend, someone she went to for advice. I just was interested to, to get your take on on how you saw their relationship and, and what she I mean, was she her. must have felt so awful for her to have been given this. I know it's a wonderful thing to be queen, but it's a terrible burden. And it's sort of a life of small talk in a way. You're meeting people for five minutes who you'll never see again. You, it's a real sacrifice. And she must have felt that for her daughter. Now that it is coming to an end, what will you take away from this experience of, of being part of, of The Crown? It's the brilliance of the crew and the directors and Peter's amazing scripts. The wonderful actors, there's so much cud to chew. And you have to trash your <laughs> scripts, you know, when it comes to an end. So I use them in my compost bin. So my flower, the Crown Fritillaria, will actually be fed by the palace. Now, how about that? And it is an epic show. You can learn about history. You can see ravishing beauty, the most wonderful acting, and all the detail and care. <laughs> what a memory to take away, Marsha. And I love that you're continuing the life of the crown <laughs> by feeding it to the, to yeah. the, yeah, to yeah, the growth of absolutely. new life, basically. Wonderful. Coming up later in this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, we'll meet another cast member. 
who, unlike Marcia, of course, is brand new to acting. Get ready for Luther Ford, who plays Prince Harry. Before that, though, it's time to hear from the research team on the events that underpin this episode. The royal pomp of the Jubilee contrasted with the painstaking analysis of Operation Paget. This is my favourite time of recording the podcast for The Crown is when I get to chat to Annie Salzberger! (laughs) Now, when we've had you on the podcast many times, you've always been, you know, enthused about the team that you work with. And you've brought a friend with you today. (laughs) My friend and colleague. Yes, tell us who you've brought with you today. So this is Anabra's sister, (laughs) who has been working, I think since 2017 with us on the research team. And Anna has really taken control, I think, in in a wonderful way of a lot of the production research. So she's on set a lot, working with directors a lot. Mm -hmm. Actors always know she's there. You know, if we have a big set piece or something complicated, which she'll talk about, it's really useful to have Anna on set. And she also manages the visual documents that we started back in season two, which translate the scripts into a visual Bible that every department can then use. So Anna has been by my side for a very, very long time, and I'm thrilled that you're going to hear from her. Hi, Anna. Hi. (laughs) How are you? What an intro. (laughs) Shall we dive into episode nine? Yeah. For people listening, you know, in other parts of the world, can you explain what the Jubilee is and what a a Jubilee is? Yeah, Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it's a celebration of an anniversary of a monarch's reign. This is 2002 will be the golden jubilee, so that's 50 years. Last time we saw a jubilee was um, the episode 10 of season three, which was 1977, silver jubilee. So 25 years, a lot has happened. It's a very different Britain that is celebrating. A very different royal family. Very different royal family. It's a whole year of events. There's tours, you know, the Queen goes to every part of the UK. She does Commonwealth tours. The sort of crescendo of the whole thing is this big weekend in London. There's a parade. There's the the Guildhall lunch that we show in the episode. But the big thing is the party in the palace. This is the first time that Buckingham Palace has opened its gardens to the public to have a party there. And you've got, you know, you've got Macca, you've got Elton, <laughs> you've got Rod Stewart. But then you've also got the young royals influence. You've got S Club 7. Um, you've got Blue. Whose choice was that? Atomic Kitten. I think that's a William choice. William Joyce. No yeah. way. Yeah. It's a big opportunity for celebrating. I think a lot of people see it as it can also be a big sort of sepia-toned nostalgia fest because you're looking yeah. back on 50 years of the of the Queen. But I think the emphasis of the 2002 one was to look ahead, you know, to embrace change. and Because she wasn't, yeah. she was really... You know, in the episode, she's very kind of conflicted about yeah. what, you know, what it's going to be like, what the public's response is going to be. Totally, yeah. To that, you know, in terms of what was the public's attitude, so, like pre and post, I guess. Yeah. I think, honestly, I, it sounds, you know, kind of callous to say, but the Queen Mother's death helped her a lot. Because prior to that, no one signed up for street parties. Like, yeah. none of the council signed up for Prime Minister Blair was getting very nervous. Yeah, the, the cultural secretary waived yeah. license fees for, like, okay, for street parties free. to make it easier, you know, yeah. to, for Please people to throw them. them. And they start planning these things years and years ahead. So in 98, there's already rumors that she's not engaging with it because mm-hmm. she knows it's going to be a failure. So she just doesn't want, she's, she tends to ostrich. She just doesn't want to deal with it. The Queen Mother dies. The whole country comes out. Mm. She's incredibly moved by the response. And she even does a broadcast where she thanks everybody. And within a week, it's like 
600 councils now all of a sudden have requests for street party licenses. And I think what they did, which was very smart, which I think the Platinum Jubilee was the same, unlike the Silver Jubilee, which was a celebration of monarchy, that felt like a real celebration of monarchy as an institution. This was a celebration of her. Yeah. So they made it personal. You are you don't have to like the monarchy necessarily, but we want to thank this woman for 50 yeah. years yes. of stable, yeah. mm-hmm. consistent service. And and I think coming in the same, you know, off, off the heels of the Queen Mother's death where you could say, I don't, you don't need to like her, but she was yeah. stable and dutiful. And she did what, you know, she was yeah. in this country, working for this country her entire life. Yeah, I think that was the sense that you got. So by the end, it was a real surprise to her that people turned up and people celebrated her. Yeah. While it had not been my destiny at birth to assume the throne, fate decreed otherwise. I was fortunate to have some remarkable role models to look up to. My father and mother, my grandparents, George V and Queen Mary. They instilled in me one of my most enduring beliefs that a life lived in service is not a sacrifice, but an honor. Thank you. Another big part of this episode is what was called Operation Paget or Paget. Now, tell me about this because was the investigation, did the investigation happen because of Mohammed Al Fayed's request or? questioning about the you know what happened that night in Paris. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a messy one. So straight after the crash, the French police obviously mount an investigation. They do really rigorous fact finding about it that is standard practice if a, a accident like that happens. And you know, a few years later they publish their report. It's not made public, but Fayed hears about these claims. I mean, the report basically summarizes that the accident happened because Henri Paul was under the influence of alcohol and um, antidepressants, and Fayed didn't agree with this at all. He started mounting um, legal challenges against that conclusion. All at the same time, in the UK, the royal coroner, um, again, standard practice, he was going to open an inquest into the death. That happens naturally in British law when someone dies in another country and has to be brought back. He decides to stall the inquest until he's sure that Fayed's legal challenges won't overrule the French's investigation. But he also decides because there's so much speculation about the death that it's best to get a Met Police team to look into it first before the inquest starts. So that's why Commissioner John Stevens, who's often called Top Cop in Britain all the time, (laughs) um, he's brought in and he creates a task force that will look into this death and make sure that there's no foul play, and so it can just go through a normal inquest system. Where did the speculation come from? It is largely... Media? Largely the media. I think Fayed is the mouthpiece of conspiracy theories around this. Although, that being said, when the crash happened, this is 1997, it's early internet, and there it's the dawn of forums and chat rooms, and that's a hotbed for conspiracy theories. You know, mm. people are people are talking about all the suspicions on there. But Fired really is the mouthpiece of them and he mounted a big campaign to lambast the conclusions that the police were finding about it not being, you know, an inside job. And was part of his thing as well the fact that it was an employee of his that had... Well, yeah. exactly. Making that much noise in the court of public opinion, 
it distracted people from his culpability in it. You know, as uh, John Stevens says at the end of his speech in this episode, it was a fired car. It was a fired security man who shouldn't be driving the car. It was they were driving from a fired property to another fired property. You know, it, there is an element of him distracting from yeah. his own partner. Mr. Alfire has repeatedly insisted the responsibility for the princess's death lies with the British establishment and has amassed a vast legal team to attempt to prove as much. But this reaction must be viewed in the light of the immense personal heartbreak and trauma involved in the loss of a son. Yet the facts remain. So I imagine then when within the show, when you're having to depict that investigation as part of this episode. Yeah. As research team and production research, how important is it to, is to get it right, is to get it on the money in terms of what went into the investigation, what they investigated, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's interesting because we have multiple realities that we have to deal with. We sort of have the reality of the Crown and what we show We've got the reality of the Paget report, and then we've got all this subsequent information from the inquest, and then we've got what we know today. And so a lot of it is sort of amalgamating all this and deciding what we want our story to be at this time. Because mm-hmm. we're we're blending time zones here to have an episode where um, different events can speak to each other, even though they might not necessarily have happened at the same time. But to have such an extensive report like this, the the Paget report was 964 pages or something like that. So it's this wealth of information that we want to try and distill, but also find elements of it that speak to us most. And And I think the way we went about it was very much similar to how Commissioner Stevens went about researching it. You know, by depicting the last weeks of Diana and Dodie's life, we were reenacting their last days. And mm. that's what Stevens did when he went to Paris. Um, we watched all the footage. We talked to experts. We talked to a crash expert who talked us through, you know, me and the set deck team talked us through what would happen to a Mercedes at that speed and all this kind of thing. Because, you know, the incredible set deck and graphics department had to reconstruct all these things for the evidence room. Yeah, They reconstructed a Mercedes. They reconstructed all of this printed off evidence. They've got 3D models. They've got um, computer models. And so it was a big endeavour. I mean, it testament to those extraordinary teams that they created this. But yeah, it was, it was a big subject to try and tackle in an episode that isn't just about this. You yeah. know, this is, this is a, a, a plot, but it's not the main plot. Yeah. Within that as well, in the episode, we see Charles and William both give statements in different ways. Yeah. You know, there's almost a sense of relief from William when it's over in a way. What do we know about the Royals' reaction, interaction with Operation Paget? Yeah, so uh, as we depict the um, Stevens and his associate, DCS Douglas, did go and interview Charles. Um, They had this letter that Paul Burrell, um, Diana's butler, had found... Um, on Diana's desk, which was from a time where Diana was very paranoid and she had written to someone saying, I think that Charles is going to try and kill me. I think, you know, she she had paranoia about this before with a previous lover. Yeah, her first affair was with Barry Manneke, who was her a PPO for the yeah. boys, and he died on his motorcycle. So she she had fears, like, you know, she she had paranoia around this. And, and so they 
put this to Charles and said, do you know anything about this? You know, as, as is founded in anything? He hadn't, he hadn't heard about that at all before. They really seriously interviewed him. You know, one of the, the guys who did it remembers it all very clearly. And he was very serious. And he took it very seriously. But it, it was standard practice. They have to yeah. interview him. And with William, you know, obviously incredibly traumatic for him to have to think Jesus, about this, you know, yeah. dig all this up. But from him, they sort of wanted to ascertain Diana's state of mind at the time because he was the last member of the royal family to talk to her. And so just in case that might help with, you know, dispelling theories, because they were asking lots of friends whether she had mentioned that she was engaged to Dodie or pregnant. And so they had to ask William because he was firsthand, you know, source on it. It must have been so frustrating for them because they just wanted to to let it be put to rest. And they released a statement after um, the Paget report was published saying, you know, we've we hope this is an end to speculation mm. and that we that we don't need to talk about our mother's death anymore. You seem to do nothing but go to funerals in this family. Tell me about it. Funerals supposed to help lay things to rest. <laughs> now I hear they're dredging up Mummy's accident again, all because of Alfred's crazy claims. I know. And this time they even want to interview me. What for? To determine Mummy's state of mind. And why you? Probably because I was older than you at the time, more able to understand what was going on. But I'm the one who's actually going through what she went through on a daily basis. You guess picked on and slagged off in the press, I know better than you what it feels like. Don't ever do that. What? Compare yourself to her. It's not remotely the same. Isn't it? What she went through was far worse. And I get it, it's not easy having no responsibility and too much freedom, but don't you think I'd enjoy the freedom sometimes of not having to be the sensible one, the reliable one, and welcome the opportunity to be the likeable rogue? No chance of that. Why is that? To be a likeable rogue, you first need to be likeable. It's been wonderful to sit down with so many legendary actors across the seasons of this podcast, but it's particularly special to get to meet the new generation. The Crown has a habit of lifting up brand new talent as well as up and coming actors, from Vanessa Kirby to Emma Corrin. So I was excited to meet the Crown's own Prince Harry, Luther Ford, on set at Elstree Studios. Luther, I feel very honoured if I'm going to be honest, because this is the first chat yes. you've had for The Crown. It's the first chat I've ever had. Ever in a, life. A, and this is the first interview I've ever <laughs> wow. had. Wow. Yes. I genuinely feel honoured, so thank you. This is so <laughs> exciting. You. Do you mind if we go back to before the camera started mm. rolling and how how it went for you being cast in The Crown yes. as, as Harry? Yeah. Where where did that journey start for you? Oh, so it started in started in September. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, I'm at university. I'm in my third year studying film. So I study film production. Yeah. Never had an intention to be an actor. Done acting though. Never acted before. No. Never acted before. Way. <laughs> so my brother's girlfriend sends me this open casting call, which I've se- I'd seen maybe on like Facebook or Twitter, or it was you know all over the place. And she sends it to me like on our group chat, sort of under the guise of like, you're ginger, 
Give it, give it a go, mate. <laughs> get, get involved. Get involved, Ginger. So, yeah. So I kind of like, I thought maybe I'll do it. I'll do it as a joke for the anecdote that I auditioned. That, that, that would be funny. And the first thing was like, send a video of yourself and just talk about yourself for like 30 seconds. So I did that and then I got back like a recall to do like, and this is all self-tapes, like um, a recall to do, it's like a dummy scene. So a scene not from the series. Um, and so like I have a couple of days to the deadline. I do it. And then like an hour later, it's like another one. We would like you to tape again. And I'm not really thinking anything of it. And I'm completely like, this never happens. These kind of things like open casting calls, which I hadn't done one before, but I was just like, it's not, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. It's still thing you see in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll follow like the, you know, I'll follow it on. And so I do another one and then I get a call from one of the, I think she's a casting assistant, Sarah Council, who was working with Robert Stern and Kate Bone. And she said, we're really excited about what you're doing. We'd like you to come and do a chemistry test with Ed McVeigh, who's been cast as William. And so now I'm like, oh no, like this is, <laughs> this was a joke. And I go and I, I don't know, I feel like I was operating out of just like naivety and just like no pressure on me because it was just the whole thing was hilarious. Like I was going into it. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'll just go and do it. I'll just go and do just something. Be. And then I got another recall. And me and Ed just got on. It was just nice. Like I wasn't too nervous. It was just fire. It was just good. And then wow. I got the fart. And it was, so it was just like the biggest escalation. And it was all in like three weeks. And I was just about to start my year at university. Like I now know that you like never know what's going to happen. It's so great. And not just the fact that it's not kind of any old role I know. that you're coming into. I know. You're coming into playing a teenage Harry, Prince Harry, yeah. which in itself has kind of, I mean, expectation, I yes. guess, in a way. Yes. The first period was just me, like, I don't know, just like up in the air, just being like, wow. And then I remember I had a rehearsal with Eric and Ed. And then it was sort of like, oh, God. Like, oh my God, like I'm, my God, I'm gonna have to like act. Like I'm gonna have to act. And then, so then there was definitely like, it was, it was very scary at that point. Cause then I was just like, wait, hold on. I can't just like, like I need to like, I, I need can't to cruise here. what's going on. <laughs> um, so I just stayed at my parents' house for like three weeks and basically just kind of stayed inside and they, they, so they provide you with this like very expensive um, research package Yeah, and just kind of went through that and also was watching The Crown, but then kind of stopped watching The Crown because I was like, it's intimidatingly <laughs> good. And then, so it just wasn't helpful in a way because I was just watching it being like, <laughs> you're not the only one Imelda Staunton did the same yeah, thing yeah. she watched the first episode of season five yeah. as she was going in to start season six she was like I can't do you this can't do it yeah, yeah. I, I think as well the hard thing about getting so much research is knowing when to stop yeah and I think at first I was 
I overthought it, started to do an impression. Mm -hmm. And I remember like having a, I would have dialect sessions with William Conacher. And we got to a point where he was just like, I think you, you know, you're starting to, you've kind of taken certain things, maybe notes too literally. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of, yeah, I just realized that I had to go back to me and realize that, well, hold on. They didn't cast a non-actor with the idea of what they were going to become. To it was probably something was already there, which is hard to understand because you're like, boy, he's a prince. <laughs> so what's that? But I kind of could understand maybe like... He's a, a boy. Sort of, he's a boy and a kind of cheeky boy and this sort of mischievousness. And that was what I felt like, okay, I, I can tap into that. And I think the main thing like from research was... Diana saying, you can be as naughty as you like, just don't get caught. And that was, that was all I needed. Because I was just like, yeah. And it was like the whole experience was like, I am. Like, I'm, I'm like, I remember my brother-in-law, he just looked at me and said, the con man is far behind enemy lines. And that's what it felt like. It was like, I just kind of got into this world. And... Like no one knew, <laughs> like I had no, no clue, no clue what was going on. That's such, uh, because, you know, in terms of a, listen, this is Peter Morgan's adaptation yes. based on these real people, but in terms of a real person having noise around them, mm. Harry may well be one of the most yeah. noisy individuals yeah. in terms of what's been written about him, what's been said about him, yeah. people's preconceptions all that about him was it important for you to try and kind of just yeah. kind of almost sort of muffle that noise out in a way yes yes because it was ridiculous I mean like it um, is ridiculous you know two months into me being cast I think his you know the, the documentary came out and then his book and I was just like oh geez like I'm in the middle of like a kind of cultural storm around this person that I'm going to be playing. So no, I just had to, but having said that, they were amazing research tools, but I just had to focus on what was within the scripts. Because like you say, you know, mm. it's Peter Morgan's vision of these people. And so you focus on the relationships within it and the angles that have been taken. And it was very, I don't know, the, the, the kind of brotherly relationship was very easy to slip into with Ed. Yeah. I think we, I don't know, we just have a really nice relationship. You can tell. I love the church scene at the Queen Mother's funeral. Oh, that was, that day was crazy. Everyone was miming. <laughs> so the, the scene, <laughs> the scene was us singing. Yeah. In, at the Queen Mother's funeral, there's about, 300 sporting artists yeah. and all of the cast. We sing, bit of dialogue, sing, bit of dialogue. And they say to us, so everyone, everyone's going to mime apart from you two. So you two are going to be singing. And they're like, <laughs> we're also going to give you an earpiece so that the music is just playing in your ear. So there's no music. So we're singing a cappella. <laughs> that day was... Um, <laughs> It was amazing. <laughs> Sorry, that was dickish of me. Come on, don't make me grovel. It's okay. Let's move on. 
what prep or or how much did that inform your portrayal of well I of think Diana him? sort of sits at the heart of both William and Harry yeah and I think that's sort of yeah her presence or lack of presence kind of dictates a lot of how they view themselves yeah I think I think that me and Ed found really helpful was this idea that William understood Diana more, but idolised her less. And Harry idolised her more, but understood her less. This idea that Harry didn't really... I think that it's quite important to Harry for her to... For him to be like her. Yeah. Because that's sort of what he's left with. Yeah. Um, And there's almost like a, a competitiveness between the two. I mean, it's such a crazy because, you know, they're bonded by this tragedy and have been exposed to, you know, what was it like? Something like 2.5 billion people watching her funeral and people expressing more emotion than they were actually feeling. Not just like, you know, mm. they were sort of drowned out by what everyone else felt mm. and never really expressed. So they're, you know, emerged and are kind of living in this really, really strange sort of sustained period of trauma that yeah. is never really dealt with. Yeah. It's an interesting relationship, isn't it? The Harry and Charles relationship. Yes, it is. Yeah. And the way that Peter's written it. Yeah. I do think that there's like, there's quite a lot of distance between them. And as he's seeing, you know, William's role within the family emerge more, that he's also losing his brother you know it's sad it is sad it is sad sad. and I do think that you know there's something in a way more heartbreaking about seeing them getting on as brothers because they love each other that's what I think I hope comes across is that there's so many shades to their relationship and you don't end on it's not black and white they love each other they find each other really annoying they're very competitive they resent each other's, you know, the heir's power and the spare's freedom. Yeah, it's a really complicated relationship. And also because of the age that they are as well, you know, kind of the emotions and the growing up that's going on in young people at that age. Yeah. You know, it's there's so much change going on internally, yeah, yeah, yeah. externally as well. And because of the the age difference that they are, you know, there's, they're all always at slightly different levels of, yes. of kind of where they are. And it's just, there's so much expectation on that relationship being what everybody expects yeah. it to be. Yeah. Rather than what the reality of what it is. Yeah. I think we really see that in the show. That's good. I yeah. think, yeah, and being born into, this sort of the first generation that are born into a, a contract with the press. They're in the public eye. And so they're dictated by that a lot. Mm. And I think what was interesting with researching is this idea of a desire for normality on their part. But there was something interesting about, you know, what does normal mean to a prince? I guess coming into this with this brilliant, you know, attitude mm. at the start, what was the reality of the experience of being in this season of the crown versus what you thought it would be? I think, I think the thing is, is that once you get to know the cast and the crew, 
it's you forget about what it is in the wider context. There's such a nice atmosphere. I think the thing I was most shocked about at first was just how relaxed it seemed. They were amazing at putting us, the younger actors, were coming in at ease, I think. But I mean, yeah, God, it's been challenging in every sense. Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, I've, I've gone through everything, really. Somehow I've just kind of rolled with the punches. And, but it was definitely, I mean, like my first day, me and Ed's first day, filming at Lancaster House, mm -hmm. which is probably the most, it feels the most kind of royal because you're, it's literally next to where the king lives. <laughs> so it was a, that was our first day there. And all the main cast was there. What was the scene? The scene was Queen Mother's Funeral, an argument. And again, everyone was miming, <laughs> apart from us. We had to project at a level above the room. Because of the Hubble and the yeah. mm -hmm. It was a ridiculous place to start. But it was really good in that it was probably the hardest thing we could have started with. And I remember then at lunch, if you like, so yeah, you're just going to go downstairs to have some lunch. Go downstairs, walk into this room. And it's like Dominic West, and Mildred Thornton, Jonathan Price, all in full costume, just sitting down, <laughs> eating lunch and I just like sit at the end of the table and just watch them and I'm just like what is what's going on what is going on no it's, it's been really good like I don't I don't think it could have really been a better experience And, of course, the younger generation do take a key role in episode nine as William and Kate finally get together and a new future for the royals begins to take shape. So let's go back to director Eric Richter-Strand. William and Kate, everybody knows them. Everybody thinks they know them. Um, we've all followed that relationship, which has been documented, you know, from the start. But we have to find it in this untouched place almost in a way do you know what I mean where it's from it's from their perspective not ours yeah it is you know one of the first scenes I filmed with Megan was a fashion show in St. Oh, Andrews wow. yeah. no way <laughs> that was one of the very first scenes if not the first wow that I filmed with her I guess that's quite good. Get out of the way. Get it out of the way. Yeah, it was, it was also great fun. <laughs> yeah, and she got to work a lot with uh, our movement coach uh, Polly Bennett, yeah, who really helps because she helps also finding that level of confidence and mm -hmm. strutting down the catwalk is not easy for anyone. Yeah, uh, and to do that in a way where you also reveal that yeah, I'm just a student. I'm just a normal person. I'm not a fashion model and. It's all a bit naff and the music and the yeah. people and the costumes is all meant to be kind of studenty and fun. Yeah. Harsh well, lighting. Harsh lighting. Yeah, that kind of school quite, disco quite lighting strict, kind of yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And at the same time, trying to, in such a heightened moment and scene where everybody's watching her, trying to do that while she's wearing a see-through dress, while not making it an exploitation of her yeah, and not making that her body the focus of it, but more that statement that she's making by stepping out onto that stage dressed like that for William mm. and creating a bubble between the two of them and saying, okay, it's actually just these two in this room right now, yeah. even though it's filled with 200 people. Did you like it? Like. You looked incredible. It just felt like doing something drastic. To know one way or another 
What? If you were interested. Do you have conversations with Ed and Meg about about almost kind of staying true to the show and not being clouded by the real people? Because there are so many headlines and stories around them as individuals, them as a couple, and that you know. And the Crown has its story of them as characters to tell. Well, my job in those situations is to help them focus on the moment. Like, what is this moment about? Because they've both read books and biographies and done very eager research. Whereas in a moment when it's about, you know, sitting down and having a meal for the first time in your new shared apartment with your friends, that's all it is. And that would be the same for anyone who's in love and looking across the table. That's no different from them than from anyone else. The same thing you know, the scenes like the fashion show, it is more heightened and every every eye, everybody's eyes are on them mm. for that reason. Uh, so it's about helping them navigate when it's personal and private and when it's more public, especially for someone like William and Ed, who plays William. He's always straddling that line between being very aware of being a public figure and being watched yeah. and then at times allowing himself to be private and just be himself. University should be about having fun and growing up. You can't have fun when you've got photographers and police officers with you wherever you go. You certainly can't go on a date with a girl. Ah, yes, I wanted to ask you about all that. Or even be seen with one without someone predicting wedding bells before long. And there's the other stuff. What other stuff? Speculation about how the monarchy, in order to stay popular and relevant should skip a generation in favour of me. Well, that's just nonsense. Well, I know that. You know that. But the people don't know that. They only know what they read. And and it gets really confusing because the more they believe the rubbish they read, the more it affects the way they behave with me and the more it ends up becoming my reality somehow. And that as well, you see that in the kind of contrast between the Middleton world and the royal world, which are the two worlds that he's straddling, you know, in terms of where does he where does he fit in? And I love that you, you know, in this episode, you take him into the Middleton household. It's it's great. It's a great thing to watch. Was it fun to film? It was fun. I mean, it's always tricky to film in locations because you think you've got more space than you do and it ends up being <laughs> quite crammed. But it was good. There's this, there's this lovely line in the episode where William talks to the Queen and says, you know, she wants me to come and meet her family. Uh, Love this to line. hang out. And just, she, oh, isn't, you know, is that a bit early? And that idea of William just hanging out and there's these great quotation marks around the way yeah. he says it. Because that idea, like, that's so foreign to him to just hang out with someone <laughs> in their living room or their kitchen and to be normal. And, you know, we try to then present Kate, coming from a normal background, as a normal family, upper middle class, but still quite yeah. uh, quite normal to everybody and relatable. <laughs> and then he comes into that and suddenly, you know, here's some, here's some pasta and <laughs> you can put it on a tray and you can sit in front of the telly and we can talk and, you know. What is it she says? She says something about, don't they have a din- dining room or something? Or yeah, William says, like, like <laughs> and they apparently they eat in the kitchen. <laughs> Why? Do they not have a dining room? I think they do, but they like to eat together. But their relationship is so great. I love kind of granny and grandson relationship. It's, It's really, there's a bond there, isn't there? There is. And I had a lot of fun with that because it, 
for me, those scenes started in episode seven of season five, yeah. episode eight, where where William went to Eton and started having, you know, buttered scones and tea with uh, granny on Sundays. Mm. And that is sort of the relationship that now has continued and developed in this episode, in episode nine. Yeah. And you can sense that there is a confidentiality between them and there is a sense of a shared destiny being number one and not number two, knowing what's about to come for him. And the Queen has this lovely protective emotion around William in this episode. She wants to make sure that he gets to experience a bit of normality and experience courtship and finding himself and growing up and learning things and being alone and outside the, you know, the... Yeah privileges of the royal family and all the, the rigor of the presentation of the royal family being outside of that for as long as he can which is what she experienced with philip at malta at the villa guadamangia which she brings up and that's i think yeah. a lovely sentiment and it feels very true i used to go to the grocers you know every day with all the other wives <laughs> and held dinner parties and picnics and went to the local hairdresser out of the spotlight living a perfectly normal life I want you to have that too. As normal a life as possible. For as long as possible. I'm doing my best. Good. And on that note, since you wanted to ask, mm -hmm. I think I might have a girlfriend. Oh. Well, do you or don't you? I do. I think. It's generally good if they don't feel you're in two minds. I'm not in two minds. She might be in two minds. Why? Have you aimed high? Impossibly high. I'm Edith Bowman, and I'd like to give special thanks to our guests on this episode. Eric Richter-Strand, Marsha Warren, Annie Salzberger, Anna Basista, and Luther Ford. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time for the final episode of the season and the final episode of The Crown ever, titled Sleep, Deary Sleep. Prince Charles decides it's time to marry Camilla, but he can't do so without his mother's permission. Before signing off, Queen Elizabeth must consult with church, state and her grandsons as she considers the future of the monarchy and her own legacy. I've always taken comfort in the knowledge that God retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Whatever short-term risk the marriage may present to the integrity of the church, one has to imagine it would do less damage than if I were to die. Well, it is going to happen one day. And my heir acceded to the throne while living in sin. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.